Sequelcast 2 and Friends is a member of the HyperX Podcast Network. Hello, Danny. I've been waiting for you. We've all been waiting for you. <gasps> After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2 and Friends. We look at movies and franchise one film at a time. This time we are halfway through. Uh, Night two out of three, looking at Mick Garris's miniseries of Stephen King's The Shining from the late 90s that starred Stephen Weber, Rebecca de Mornay, and Melvin Van Peebles with the Cortland Mead as the uh, as the pup, as, as the, the child. Uh, with me is Thrasher. I guarantee it. And Alex. Hey, Cortland Mead, the wee little pup, the hand that rocks the cradle. Hey, ta tar tar Yes, and this version of The Shining, I mean, we, you know, they've already, the first episode, they got to the house, they established that, um, that it's spooky, that, that Danny, well, that is spooky, yes, that Danny Torrance has a mental link with the, uh, Matthew Modine, the groundskeeper, also Matthew Modine, that's never explained why, but yes, <laughs> the, the adult Danny, and adult Danny, <laughs> excuse me, uh, and adult Danny doesn't make much of a present. I, I was sort of surprised after that first episode. We haven't, we don't see him that much. For... Well, and beyond that, we I talked about my impressions of the of of uh, you know Tony uh, in in the previous episode where there's this horrible floating effect. They do yes. they abandon that floating effect for his few appearances in this episode, and it works. They are filming it exactly the way I felt that they should have filmed it in the first episode. I would have rather just had it be a voice, I think. It just... A voice or just, a, like, in the second... And like you said, they abandoned it much to the show's benefit. And he's just a dude, and it works, because you know that Tony is Danny's imaginary friend. So, you know, we don't need any floaty screensaver effects. It's okay. We, well, we get... it, was, it was creepier in the, uh, the the Kubrick Shining, where you didn't hear a voice or, or see who his friend was. You could have thought, is this little kid just insane? He, he's talking in these weird high-pitched voices and when he was talking like tom waits yeah <laughs> yeah a bit yeah and um i think that made it more cre- also the way that uh, that kid looked look, is a uh, creepier than um the, the kid actor in here but as well, actually, we, did you yeah. notice that uh that little, that little danny in this episode on a number of occasions dresses just like chucky from child's play <laughs> a little bit yeah it, it's that Kind of overall thing that you don't see too much anymore. The stripy long sleeve shirts. The stripes. Numbers, yeah. I mean, it was the 90s. Stripes were everywhere. True. Stripes and... and that uh, terrible, terrible haircut. The, yeah, the bowl cut that he had was pretty standard. Um, <laughs> sure Stephen King insisted upon it. Yes. Oh, I mean, he had, yeah. He, I mean, he had super, super detail of, of what he wanted people to do. And whatnot, and I think what we see here in this uh, second night too is 
more uh, you get some flashbacks, but I think more of the relationship of the the marriage and the status of of such between uh, Wendy and Jack, led by Stephen Weber and Rebecca De Mornay, uh, respectfully, uh, respectively. And I think that works because, like in the Kubrick Shining, like Jack's a it's like very Brechtian. It's like Jack's a writer because the movie says so. Like Jack and Wendy are married. Yes. So there's no real warmth there. In this one, you do get a very uh, familial sense that, you know, um, that these two are in love and this guy loves his son. And it also works to the benefit of the of the drama, because then once things start to slip and he starts to get a little squirrely, you kind of get this dangerous feeling that you're like, OK, this guy could actually like I could see this guy dislocating or breaking his kid's arm. You know what I mean? You, you can definitely tell that this dude's capable of doing some dark shit. Right, and he gets he gets obsessed with the records of the Overlook and stops working on the play. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I really liked in this adaptation. So in, in in the Kubrick one, Jack just goes insane because of the like the isolation and possibly ghosts. But in but in in this version, I love his obsession with the old records and the Overlook and like trying to assemble a comprehensive history of frankly an inexplicable place where inexplicable things seem to always happen. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's, oh, sorry, keep going. Like, like he really is like opening the door to his mind as he starts going through these old books and journals and newspaper reports. Yeah. And also this is like pre-internet too, you know, like this is yes. like, and also I could, I kind of related to it too. Cause you know, this is probably, I could see myself getting into this, going through some old records, finding photo albums and stuff like, it's, you know, and the, I think, like, the irony, too, is that, like, you know, raise your hand if you're a writer, right? All three of us. Um, yep. Is that, uh, I think the irony, though, is that, like, any publisher or writer would probably know that, um, like, a true crime ghost story book about a haunted hotel would probably be much more lucrative than, like, your your Sam Shepard spinoff play, you know what I mean? Well, I also, like, I listened to this, and I'm like, well... Well, if if this were all real, eventually there would be the true crime podcast about the Overlook Hotel. I wonder what that would sound like. I bet it yeah. would sound like something like this. Hello. Welcome <laughs> to the ladle. Today, <laughs> we're looking at the Overlook Hotel. An inexplicable place where inexplicable things happen. And then you have, like, the echoey piano come in. Right, <laughs> kind of playing at a slower tempo. You you, you begin with a completely unrelated fact that you will fail to thematically tie in to the actual main topic. <laughs> right, and it's often kind of a a joke or kind of a jokey kind of lighter thing. In 1837, and... there was a banana famine. <laughs> right. Yes. Exactly. And, um, and you you go around. And I think what it, what this adaptation does, and you see this especially in Night 2, is it gives uh, Wendy, uh, the wife, more to do than in, in the Kubrick film. And there's specifically a, a very long scene where she comes down and she's kind of in a, a nighty of sorts and basically wants to have sex with uh, her husband. And he's just obsessed looking at these papers. And I, I give Stephen Weber credit. Like, he actually gets really vulnerable at one time and breaks down and starts crying and yeah, a lot goes on in that scene, and, and there's mm-hmm. great performances from the two of them. Yeah, and that's like the one time I think I yelled at the television. I'm like, "Put the damn book down, Jack! Come on!" Because <laughs> she like several times she's like, you know, I mean, this is a made-for-TV uh, miniseries, right? So that you, you can't 
she can't like flash a nipple or, or I don't know, like do something more uh, overt. But she's, I think she does that kind of subtle things with her shoulders and how she's looking and she looks kind of pouty at times. And it, it makes their, you know, their relationship has not been in the best of, of states, I think, for quite a while now. And when she suggests that they just need to leave the house, the house is the prop, even, you know, kind of going a bit stir crazy since we've been in the house. Like he gets very, very defensive. Yeah. I also, I think also like the setup um, of the doctor in the beginning and the analogy he uses is that you have a, you basically have a grad student in the body of a seven-year-old boy. And he's like, you know, you're, he's like, I'm also suspecting there's some strain and tension in your marriage. And, you know, the way that it's like, it's very doctorly, you know, he's like, I can see this way his eyes follow you around, you know, and then it's perfectly kind of summarized, like, like that little scene, like you said, there's so much going on with, um, with uh, Wendy, you know, uh, courting um, uh, Jack and, you know, his kind of breakdown there and everything. And she's kind of talking about, like, you know, you sound like your father. You're not drinking, but you're acting like you're drunk. Yeah, and th- that finally is, is and I, I wish this had been seated in a little bit sooner, but this is when we finally get into Jack's history with his abusive father. And like, and we, and we, and it, it makes the whole line of you little pup, you're going to take your medicine. Yes. It, that, it makes that phrase make more sense. Cause that does sound, that does sound like something a more old timey 1940s, 1950s abusive father may have, may have flung out. And you, yeah. don't, you don't see who the father is, but it's voiced by Miguel Ferrer. That's right. Huh. Which really, is a good touch. Cause he's got a great voice. He does. And among other things, he played the uh, emperor in the David Lynch Dune movie. Wait, no, that's his father. I take that back. Uh-huh. Are you, you mean the Baron Harkonnen, or are we? No, it. Um, his his father Jose Ferrer played the Emperor. Oh, my mistake. Um, but Miguel Ferrer is in the Twin Peaks and all kind of things. Yeah, he's yeah. awesome. But yeah, also like, the more scurvy Jack gets, the more old timey like more old timey isms he affects. You know what I mean? Like mind your father or stuff like that. Yes, and um. And yet you can see he's, and then there's something, I don't know if it's just that they want to show that sometimes he's normal and sometimes he's not, but he, and Stephen Weber is, is capable of doing both. But as a, as a viewer, I sometimes felt kind of like I was being jerked around as to, was he faking being nice? Is he faking being angry? Because mm-hmm. he, he'll facilitate between the two, um, not just scene to scene, but within the same scene. And then some close-ups, like, you know, he's they're talking about him chewing on all the aspirin and he's rubbing his temples and stuff. Like, he seems really uh, having a hard time. Yeah, and and other times he's, like, making jokes. Yeah, and I think that's one of those things, like, depression and addiction is that, like, subconsciously you're trying to communicate to other people that you're in pain. So you're going to overtly rub your temple make it be known that you're chewing on aspirin, make it be known that you're struggling because deep down you're saying, you know, help me. I am, I am, yes. I am hurting, you know? But you don't want to say the words help. Exactly. Me. Yeah. Thrasher? No, no, you, you are absolutely like spot on. There's more, there, there's more subtlety and realism to this particular adaptation's depiction of an abusive parental figure because of those details. And, and the yeah. detail where the, the, um, Danny, the, their son, has action figures um, just kind of laying around everywhere and he, he's uh, picking them up and, and getting mad about it. And uh, his wife points out, well, he's seven. 
Right. And and but yet Jack is treating that as seriously as um, him going up in the room he's not supposed to. Yeah, and um, this is funny, and of course this is something that like would have popped out. Um, and this is going to be it's going to sound stupid, but it's funny because it's like Amy <coughs> Lloyd in the Kubrick shotting plays like he's being directed by Stanley Kubrick. Like you notice, like the trucks are like <laughs> a perfect symmetrical line. You know, uh, <laughs> yes, yes. And this is like there's army guys on the check chessboard. You know, like stuff a seven year old boy would do. Oh, so do you know that there is a uh, a sequel cast connection in that scene with Danny's toys lying around? Uh, it's probably what the toy is, but what is well, it? Well, actually, yeah. So as, as near as I can tell, the big robot action figure that is that is in that scene, as near as I can tell, that is the Power Rangers Blue Centurion action figure, except they painted it green, possibly for legal reasons. Uh-huh. Uh, Blue Centurion uh, was an ally of the Power Rangers in Power Rangers Turbo, and of course we did we did cover Turbo a Power Rangers movie. Yes, the um, the second out of the original uh, um, live action ones before we did the remake. And if you're and, watching the Japanese language Power Rangers in Japan, he is Signal Man. Signal Man. Yep, from Car uh, from Car Ranger. Well, in, in that case, I'm very glad you know they didn't punch in and do a close up of the action figure because had you seen, oh, that's a Power Ranger, it would have taken me totally out of the moment, and I would have thought of its uh, overly catchy theme song. Well, it would have dated the film in a weird way. Uh, yes. So, what else about this uh, night two stands out? I think um, I, I I I was saying about the writing thing earlier. I think it's just kind of funny though. Like, let's just say in an ultra universe, you know, everything works out. Jack writes two things. He goes to his publisher and he's like, "All right, what do you guys like?" Well, I wrote this, uh, you know, play about you know an American family. And I also wrote this, like, true crime uh, mafia, you know, true crime story about the Overlook Hotel. It's got mafia hits, you know, decaying chicks in bathtubs, uh, guys going crazy and whacking each other with croquet mouths. I'd be like, oh, I'll take the true crime thing, <laughs> not, the, not the play. But, uh, you know, I think the possibility of that's much higher. Something that is unintentionally hilarious in this episode, and I even thought that so... We were watching this on Plex, and so there's like a sample image that we click on to start to start the the video. Yeah. And the sample image on this one is of the bathtub woman, but because of the way the the rotting bathtub woman looks and her makeup, the particular frame that starts it off is her smiling, and all I could think of is I'm old Greg. <laughs> Jeez. And, and the and the sad thing is, is like. That's actually a pretty decent effect for a TV miniseries. I overall like the design of the bathtub woman when she shows up, and I think she is effectively creepy. But every time they show her face and she smiles and does that tongue thing, it becomes unintentionally hilarious, even if you don't know old Greg. Yeah, bathtub woman is played by Mick Garris' wife, uh, Cynthia Garris, who also um, sang the the music of over-the-end credits, of Critters 2. It's time to tap in with the HyperX Quadcast S microphone. The stunning HyperX Quadcast S features dynamic, customizable RGB lighting, a convenient tap to mute sensor, and four selectable polar patterns. So we can broadcast crystal clear audio, whether you're gaming, streaming, podcasting, or impressing your remote colleagues and classmates. So what are you waiting for? Join the Quad Squad 
and tap in today with the HyperX Quadcast S microphone. Considering that you're doing it for network television, I think that worked pretty well. Yeah, I think it was good because they do the squibs, but they don't have the blood squibs. Like you see the chest explode, but you know, you don't have like the John Woo ribbons of blood flying around. But um, I thought it was really effective. And what I thought was also really effective was the way they photographed the crime scene for the old timey newspaper. Like oh, you've got yeah. the cop like pointing at the blood stain and stuff like that. Like when you see those old mafia hits, you know, of like, you know, guys getting shot up in their cars and barbershops, they're always like that. There's always like a detective with a hat, derby hat, you know, like pointing down like this is the blood stain, you know. Right. And you always want to like you always want to have your picture in the paper because it makes your agency look good. Yeah, exactly. True. And what I think what is less effective is you have Jack uh going outside doing maintenance on this um and kind of this dollhouse thing and then he starts getting freaked out by the uh by the the bushes cut to look like animals well, well yeah this is where it gets this is what a scene that i thought was really disappointing because that that miniature playhouse copy of the overlook hotel th- that suggests so many possibilities for horror and so many possibilities yeah. for setting up like in- interesting parallel action of what like Danny might do if he's playing in that playhouse versus what's actually what's whatever horrific thing is going on inside the real overlook. And then all we get are the windows flap open and hear, Hi Jack, how you doing? <laughs> like it's it is so unintentionally comical. And and then yeah, and 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 we yeah, and then like the topiaries come to life, and like I knew I knew those topiaries were going to come to life, oh, and yeah. it's not too bad when they use a lot of quick cuts. I think the topiary effects are okay because they mo- they switch between photos of real topiaries and these kind of rudimentary CGI topiary models. But, but then the every now and then shot, they make, you get they make the over- mistake of lingering on the CGI topiaries, and that's when it becomes completely unconvincing. Yes, and you get the, the shot that ends night two is an overhead shot of uh, Danny, the boy, and the topiaries are coming alive and surrounding him. And that looks extremely poor, and that's not i wouldn't blame that on mick garris or anything like that it's just what cg you could do on television for that budget at the time yeah at the Uh, time but just like imagine not doing any special visual effects but just cut away and then cut back to the topiary and it's closer right yeah right yes and then it's closer that would be effectively freaky it cost absolutely nothing to do that i will go so far as to say if it was people in like puppeteers in topiary suits that would also have been more effective yeah definitely Mm -hmm. and i mean cubic was considering doing the topiary scene which just he didn't couldn't figure out how to do it or he didn't want to do it with stop motion i think is the way they probably would have done it at the time and so you have elements of uh, kind of the topiary maze and, and so forth, but not, the, but it works without it. And I think it that they have all this time setting it up. And yet also you get the setup of, oh, there's a croquet mallet leaned against this uh, dollhouse version of the house that he takes with him back into the house. Dun, dun, dun. And that becomes a big thing for night three. Um, but also to on the topiaries, there is a in the following episode of a scene where they do use um, puppeteering for the topiary, and it's just like a couple, like a few seconds, and it looks so infinitely much better. I mean, sure. like without even the need for comparison, it's just it just looks so much better. 
So one thing that I thought did really work is when when Danny sneaks into the room and he encounters the bathtub woman. Yeah. Uh, is is just that when when they just find him completely catatonic with the bruises around his neck. That's not next episode. That is this episode, correct? They kind of bleed together in my head. Yeah. Yeah. This is it. it takes place in the second one. This one. Yeah, and and it's just like the the sort of mix of terror and love that that Danny's parents experience trying to figure out what the heck has happened to our kid. Our kid is having yeah. a medical emergency and it doesn't make any sense. Like there there is a there is a, a real desperation in the performance that I think works really well. I think that th- that and and like the the failed seduction scene, I think the two best scenes in this for me. Yeah, and there's also like there's the blame game thing, but like when you break it down, like you know Tony, the rooms, all this stuff. You know this to the to to Wendy and Jack. That's all just you know kid stuff. They you know. But the scary conclusion you're going to reach is that is there another person in this giant hotel? And that is a concept that scares the ever loving shit out of me. Is that like just mm. having another strange person in your house, apartment, bedroom, whatever? That's a terrifying thought. You know, for Danny, this is all supernatural. But for them, they're just going to think of this on a literal level and think that like. Is there a woman prowling the grounds and is she leaving lipstick stains and bruising my son? That's that's terrifying. Oh yeah, I mean the the implications are just mind-blowingly horrific. And I and I and I even love and and unlike so many other like horror stories where something inexplicable happens and everyone writes it off, no, he grabs an implement and he goes looking for a stranger in the hotel. <laughs> yeah, and again, that's terrifying. Like I'd be, you know, blah, blah, blah. um in the there's also that scene where they're kind of, you know, doing the blame game and, you know, he's like, it was her, it was her when he sees uh, old Greg lady. And, um, you know, she's like, how could you blame me? He's like, no, but it doesn't feel nice to be blamed now, does it? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. And you, um, I mean, this is still, you know, a lot of setup. I think people think of when you think of the shining people are like, oh, he's running around crazy with an ax and screaming and stuff. And that's really um, put aside until, I would say, over halfway through night three, but we'll get to that next week. Exactly. Um, and, I, and I'm frankly, I'm glad they hold off on that. Yeah. Yeah, there's because, a lot of good character stuff in this episode. Yeah, yeah there's definitely motivation. a lot What was that, Alex? Oh, there's definitely a lot of, uh, like you said, a lot of motivation, a lot of set- setting up going on, but um, it definitely ups the kind of emotional stakes because it comes very close to, like, you kind of come close to turning on Jack after a certain period because, like, you know, you know, um, you know, he's being motivated by outside forces, but you also kind of, you're close to turning on him because you're like, he's being such a dick to his wife and he's being such a jerk to his son and, you know, you're, and Stephen Weber, I think, does a pretty good job of um, of, of managing that that tonal um, that tonal shift of loving parent and you know raving mad person. Yep. So yeah, this night too. I don't know. Do we have? Should we give a sequel? Yes or no to the Knights of a miniseries? Well, did 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 we do that last week? I think so. Yeah. So we should. Uh, this week, this is really borderline for me. I don't know. I think it's sequel, yes, because it's setting up stuff and really digs into the character uh, moments uh, more so than the night one where you're trying to spend so much time setting up the house itself. 
you can tell you know something is going to happen just you're not sure what if you haven't seen this stuff before um so i mean i, I would say a sequel yes it's it's mini series you should watch the whole thing and but just be prepared a lot of it's more uh drama than horror and um but setting up the one makes the other i think more effective later on i'm, uh, I'm gonna give this a sequel yes as well the the storytelling is great the character moments are great there's some really good performances yeah i mean the special effects are really the only thing that holds it back and it's mostly the cgi special effects whenever they do something practical it looks really good you know like the 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 bathtub lady looks really good the when when the hose comes to life and it's cgi not good when it's just a fire hose being pulled on a piece of fishing line, it's actually kind of creepy. Right. Like, you know, the, it's it's simpler was better, I think. And so I'm going to give this a sequel. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going to go sequel. Yes, as well. Um, there's definitely a few, um, well, you know, lag moments that lag a little bit. Um, uh, but it, it's like I said, it's a lot of setting up and it's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of character stuff and developing these uh, developing these people and developing these characters. Um, yeah, the, the CG stuff, even for the time, even for the budget, it's just maybe should have just been kept on the, the CG just should have just been kept out of it. And you could have achieved much more uh, uh, frissons of fear with uh, with more practical effects. But. Hey, I did make the movie, right? Um, but yeah, no, definitely a sequel, yes. It's uh, a little slower, but it's uh, it's working to a uh, it's working to something, you know. We're the Spirit Hunters, and we're a show that treats Hunter Hunter and Yu Hakusho's author as the center of the universe. Some weeks we do linguistic analysis. So the Chinese meaning of this character is to smelt or refine, but so the changed meaning in Japanese it means to temper. Other times we get absolutely smashed. So we take one shot every time. Yusuke uses the ray gun. One hour later. This is the least coherent episode. Oh, I'm Sarah, you're... I think your apartment is you can find out more about the Spirit Hunters right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Fans of video games, history, or video game history will definitely want to listen to Retronauts. Each week, Bob Mackey and myself, that's Jeremy Parrish, dive into the stories behind the greatest games of the past and the history behind the hits of today. Check us out every Monday on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Right, so let's... Um... You know, we're not going to do pitch a sequel for a miniseries because that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So on to what you're watching. Um, I watched a documentary that just came out on uh, Amazon Prime, in the United States at least. Um, it's called Val. It's about the life of Val Kilmer, and it's oh, made yeah. from home movies he shot over his whole career. And it assumes you already know a lot about Val Kilmer's career because there's no narration there's no real talking heads it does cut between um kind of present day material and the older stuff but if you're not interested in uh, val kilmer to begin with you know i don't think this is going to change your mind at the same time val kilmer um at least for some of the movies he was in had a role for for being a bit of a a diva being hard to work with and you don't quite see that here. They seem to try to soften those points. But unfortunately, uh, for a few years now, um, he had uh, throat cancer. And when they were doing the surgery on it, it made it so, although uh, they got rid of the cancer, I believe, it made it so he can't really speak until he basically uses a, they did a tracheotomy. So he, he sounds a bit like um, a robot or Stephen Hawking or something when he talks. I didn't yet, know that. 
to that. Yeah. And he, he's lost a lot of weight and um, he acted in a movie uh, with his daughter, um, just, just talking like that and stuff. And uh, he's in the new Top Gun movie, apparently, but that's been pushed now oh. to 2022. We've, that's been finished for like two or three years now. Um, so how he's in that as Iceman, I'm not quite sure. And there's even talks of a uh, uh, an AI company that created a version of Val Kilmer's voice using past clips of stuff he said. Hmm. So um, strange. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but they don't show that in that part in the documentary. That just happened in the news around the same time as the documentary came out. They had something similar with Roger Ebert, but it was fairly slow, so he would just rather do his um, kind of a standard robot-sounding voice. But uh, the Valkyrie documentary, it's very fly in the wall. Uh, there's a funny bit with um, him in the island of Dr. Moreau with Marlon Brando, where he's looking for Brando, and Brando is having uh, drinks on a uh in a hammock and he tells val give me a few good pushes val <laughs> give me a few good pushes so oh that's a good one that delightful can you do a favor for me could you take like a quarter of an orange and like put it in your mouth and kind of pretend it's your teeth because i've never actually seen what that looks like i do not watch any of my own films <laughs> And the, the one bit of input you get, which is, so you do get some narration of 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 it, and you have one of Val Kilmer's sons uh, doing the narration, and he does a great Val Kilmer imitation. It's kind of uncanny. And, um, and in it, he mentions with uh, Moreau that, you know, he took it to work with um, Marlon Brando, and then because the, you, you went through a few directors on that, uh, they wouldn't listen to Marlon Brando's um, wacky character ideas. So Marlon Brando just had his uh, his stand-in be on camera most of the time, and he just kind of didn't put an effort in his performance. Oh, for Dr. Moreau? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think it's one of those things where they didn't have to cater towards his crazy ideas. They kind mm-hmm. of like were uh, contractually obligated to, because a lot of his crazy ideas did come through like the veil and like the the like weird paint, the weird face paint, and like Nelson De La Rosa being his right hand man, like yes, and the many... device and everything. Like, yeah, they, they they catered to a lot of his little wacky Marlon Brando isms. Well, as I understand it, like the whole reason the bucket of ice happened is he wanted to be cooler while filming outside. He's just and also he had a microphone. His, his he didn't want to read his. <laughs> he didn't want to read his lines. The, the, yes. Although there was also apparently there's also a story that he kept pitching a twist ending where like Moreau would take his face paint and headdress off and it would be revealed that he had a blowhole and he had been a dolphin the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That would be kind of cool. Well, that would be goofy, but then that raises the question, who is performing all this surge? Like who performs surgery on the dolphin? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Uh, There's, yeah, Brando has a history of suggesting kind of odd things. You don't know whether he's just like fucking with the director or if it's stuff he honestly believes. Like he was in the, um, it might have been a Stanley Kubrick movie, but it was a Christopher Columbus movie, I think, mm. where where Brando, uh, God, I haven't actually seen the film, but I read Brando's memoir. And he mentioned he wanted to have stuff in there about the treatment of Native Americans and America and uh, the, uh, the, the colonials uh, melting the skin off of Native Americans, and they just told him, like, no, it's not that kind of movie. 
This is trying to be a, a more like an adventure movie on a boat than a my boat. I want to get on the boat. I was right. at the Missouri Breaks with Jack Nicholson. That was a western he did, kind of in this uh, late seventies, I want to say. 76. Yes. Yeah. But Nicholson directed that, didn't he? Or was it Brando um, that directed? So the one Brando directed was One Eye Jacks, which is good. This was okay. an Arthur Penn joint, the Thanks, Bobby and Clyde dude. But yeah, so the, the Val Kilmer thing, if you like Val Kilmer, I think it's worth watching. He He's pretty damning about Batman Forever. Um, <laughs> which is funny. And he has, there's a good line in there where he says, like, every boy wants to be Batman, but nobody actually wants to be Batman. <laughs> there's something to that. Uh, yeah, and it, it's the the suit is uncomfortable and you can't move. And he he mentions he puts his hands on his hips in almost every scene in the film because there's nothing else Batman can do to try to look dynamically different. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, always the thing is like he's he's like one of the most acrobatic characters in comics, but every time he's in a movie, with the exception of the Adam West movie, they give him the most bulky body armor that you cannot move in. Yeah, that spandex affords for much more uh, range of motion, we'll say. I wonder what they'll do with the the new one's just called the Batman, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm so, so tired of the Bat. Robert Pattinson, they couldn't even take a break. And then in the meantime, what the Flash movie is going to have both the Ben Affleck Batman and the Michael Keaton Batman, because it's a... Uh, Time everyone's doing a multiverse. Yeah, oh. everyone's doing like a multiverse story, it seems. Oh boy! I mean, if but, if if they ever finish making it, you know, we'll see. I just want every actor that's ever played Batman in like a like just on like the dance floor, like just dancing to the Monster <laughs> Mash in their Bat costume still though. Yeah. Do Doing the, the twist. It was the Mash. It was the Batman Mash. That's right. It'd be good. Um, Alex. Uh, let's see. What have I been watching? So I watched. Um, we watched the uh, Woodstock '99 Peace, Love, and Rage documentary. Um, have any of you guys seen this yet? No. No, this isn't this Scorsese one from the '70s, is it? No, I wish oh, okay. it was that. the The one from the the actual Woodstock documentary is awesome. Um, but yeah, this was this was an interesting watch. I think like. I don't have much nostalgia for the late 90s because I think the music scene was kind of a crapshoot of terrible things that were just this horribly homogenized, misogynized uh, remnants of what grunge and rap and metal were. And it just kind of was this culmination of just bad music. Uh, The the best thing about the late 90s before The Matrix were reruns of The Critic at midnight on Comedy Central. (laughs) Yeah, that's about it. Um... And, like, the thing that, like, I was kind of annoyed by is that, like, you have a lot of, like, um, like columnists and writers and pop culture critics and musicians, you know, kind of waxing philosophical about, like, how could this happen? And, like, the reality is, is that, like, it's not one thing, you know? It's not just the $4 water or the poor planning or the lack of staffing and, like, the, the cultural climate. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of things. It's all of these things. And... You know, it's not like somebody flipped a switch and everything went on, but you just have a bunch of liquored up people who are drugging and drinking. And also there's just kind of like 
uh, I don't know. Basically, like, the movie's at its best, I think, when it addresses the, like, the really bad, like, you know, um, gender politics that were going on at the time, because it's very much like the years of, like, Girls Gone Wild tapes and stuff like that. And, you know, everyone's saying, like, show me your tits to Rosie Perez and stuff like that. And um, her reply was great, actually, too. And it was like, Blockbuster, three ninety nine. do the right thing, go rent it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I... I it's one of those things where it, the movie's at its best, I think, when it's being more incisive into cultural criticism. Um, and it's at its worst when it's kind of doing this blame game thing. Um, but there's some pretty good uh, footage of uh, some of the live performances. Uh, there's one bit that makes me love The Offspring all the more. And the, the lead singer, Dexter, was like, you know, we've heard a lot of things about women being groped if they're crowd surfing. Just because a woman wants to crowd surf doesn't give you the rights to like fondle her. And, and then he wraps up by going, ladies, if you see a guy crowd surfing, grab him by the fucking balls. <laughs> <laughs> it's like not the not the proper solution, but props for props for going there. Um, I mean, yeah, believe it or not, you didn't hear that much of that kind of talk back then or not, not the way it is um, now where uh, more people are coming out into the, the open about um, shitty treatment of uh, women in general. Yeah, it's just, um, you know, and there's like a lot of upsetting footage and uh, and just it, it's just one of those things where you can't have peace, love and rock and roll when, you know, Fred Durst is saying, break your fucking face tonight, you know. <laughs> and like I there's also like one time when the when the Chili Peppers were on and uh, the promoter was like, could you tell the crowd to like mellow out? And it's like, all right, dude, like you're just that's you're, that's not no. their job. <laughs> they're here to rock, man. Like, <laughs> and then they gave him shit because they played a cover of of uh, "Light My Fire" by Jimi Hendrix, oh, and they feel like they kind of blamed them for like inciting, well, like, light, "Light My Fire" or "Stand Next to Your Fire." Because "Light My Fire" was the Doors. Yeah, well, stand, it's just called "Fire," but yeah, uh, "Stand Next to Your Fire." Yeah, the Jimi Hendrix song. Um, and uh, it's like, first of all, the Chili Peppers cover that all the time. That's like in the repertoire. It's on a damn album for Christ's sakes. Um, it's on the Mother's Milk album, uh, and they and they cover it all the time. And it's like the Chili Peppers are not ones to incite violence amongst a crowd, so don't even try to play the blame game there. You know, like, and what do they do? They play the the Hendrix song. You know, it's like, oh yeah, because fires in the title. Come on, like, but um, I don't know. There's some interesting stuff there though. But I just think that um, yeah, it's just. It's a lot of people trying to figure out the uh, incalculable stupidity of a, you know, poorly planned event that ended sadly in violence. Certainly. So, and Thrasher. So I, uh, here's a, another Val Kilmer collection uh, connection. Uh, I watched uh, Val Kil one of Val Kilmer's star-making roles from 1984 these early period Zucker Abrams and Zucker film top secret. Oh yes. I, oh yeah. That's possible. I, I am proud. I'm happy to say it still holds up really, really well. Uh, your, your mileage va may vary because uh, uh, there is a rape joke at the end, but up until that point, it is, it is, it is everything that is good about a Zucker Abrams and Zucker comedy is in this. It's like it's a well-observed parody. Uh, Peter Cushing uh, is in it and and ha as this like librarian, and inexplicably his scene is filmed backwards. 
And, and it just it, it it and but they don't like set up that it's backwards, but it leads you to like it really causes you to question like, wait, how did they film this? Because there were things that happen that make less sense when you know that they're filmed backwards than if it had been filmed forwards. Uh, mm-hmm. But like, but the whole the whole premise is that uh, Val Kilmer played it. It is ostensibly set in the modern day because it's a, a big driving force behind the plot is the divide the modern day as of 1984, because it's all about the divide between East and West Germany. Um, and so he plays Nick rivers, a sort of Elvis like musician who has a, who has this hit single single called skeet surfing. And they even have a music video for it. It's hilarious, but he goes to East Germany to perform at a cultural festival, but then it turns out his whole performance is part of a cover operation because in Eastern Germany, which is still run by Nazis, even though it's 1984, they have this plan to conquer West Germany. And he gets pulled into all these like weird spy shenanigans. And there's there's well-observed parody, but then there's also surrealist humor. Uh, and they sort of hit every beat of both an Elvis movie and a Cold War thriller and a World War II escape movie. That's great. And Val Kilmer, I mean, I learned this from that uh, documentary I was watching. Uh, he was the youngest person at the time to be accepted into Juilliard. Oh, wow. Interesting. And, and Top Secret was, I think, his first role as a leading man, because he had this and he had Real Genius, right? Real Genius might predate this. You know, I'll have to, I'm going to check. Uh But yeah, I, I so I, I heartily recommend Top Secret. It is a it is a delightful piece of work. Oh no, Real Genius came out the next year, eighty five. Real Genius great, is also worth the watch, actually. This has got that great line. Um, I know a little German. He's sitting over there. Oh yeah, this <laughs> Billy Barty's there, like in Lederhosen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's oh yeah, it's so so good and just like great. Or he's, I, I love the scene. He's crawling on his uh, stomach through the grass and he sees these German boots and the camera pulls away and it's just a pair of boots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it just, it's full of great stuff like that. Oh, man. And like when and like when they're having the shootout in the shack and like everybody is right next to each other and they keep breaking windows for no reason to shoot through them, even when there's already like a window broken to shoot through. <laughs> oh, and then there's 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 a whole like weird blue lagoon side plot, which I think is only there because Blue Lagoon was popular and in the zeitgeist at the time. <laughs> but if you don't if you don't know the Blue Lagoon, that whole part of the movie is not going to make a goddamn bit of sense to you. <laughs> so they have a fight underwater. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Old West cowboy fight that happens at the bottom of a lake. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, really, you really need to see this. So many of the like so many of the gag scenes still require are still like so technically proficient, like. Like it's hard enough to fill a cowboy brawl in a saloon, but to film a cowboy brawl in a saloon that's also entirely underwater, 
just mm-hmm. imagine, like I'd like to see James Cameron do that. No, seriously, I would like to see James Cameron do that. Get on that, James Cameron. Yeah. Film your film your scuba western, which I guess could be one of the Avatar sequels because one of them is supposed to be about the oceans on Pandora. Avatar uh, two is supposed to be about the ocean, so I imagine James Cameron being James Cameron will have some kind of big fight in the Avatar ocean. Avatar two is about making money. <laughs> <laughs> to search for more money. <laughs> Oh, there we go. So, do we have a, a scene to perform for The Shining, or no? Regrettably, no. I could okay. I could not find one that I could anchor in this episode. That's fine. So, um, this will be a bit of a shorter one then. So, yeah, next time we'll be wrapping up our discussion of Nick Garris' The Shining with uh, looking at Night Three, so the, the final episode. And uh, for sequel cast two, this is Matt Bradley Shergy. Yeah, fuck. This is Matt. Um, <laughs> Follow well, me on Twitter. Yeah, follow me on Twitter at m a t w b t, and uh, download epi- download episodes of the show at sequelcast2.com. Thrasher. All right. Well, hey, I'm back on social media. I've started a new, mostly professional Twitter account because I'm I am I am reevaluating my priorities and focusing more on my art. Uh, you can now follow me on Twitter at WT2Art. Uh, I'm going to leave Internet Mayor up for a little while longer, uh, but eventually that is going to be just totally shut down. So if you want to see what I'm working on now, check out at WT2Art uh, on Twitter. Uh, also, our music is performed by Mark with a C. Check his stuff out at markwithac.com. Also, uh, the At the Shrine of Authoress Kickstarter. Uh, it's the f- fifth edition D&D campaign that I'm doing the cartography for. Uh, as of this recording, we have hit our first two stretch goals. So all the maps that I'm doing will now be full cover, but we still have some other stretch goals to go. Uh, by the time this episode is, is, is released, there should... Uh, still be about another week left on the Kickstarter, so look for At the Shrine of of Authoress if you want to uh, support me, support this awesome 5th edition D&D campaign, uh, and, you know, other, otherwise see what I'm doing. And Alex? Uh, very nice. You could follow me on Twitter at CrabNebula1914, and um, also have a YouTube channel of the Trailer Project. Um... I'd say the most recent thing I posted, um, some experimental music video stuff, uh, a lot of mixed uh, mixed media, uh, found footage type, um, kind of avant-garde looking videos. And there's also trailer commentaries, which is why, uh, which is how this all got started, hence the name, The Trailer Project. So yeah, drop by, check it out. Um, there's some fun stuff going on. Very good. So until next time for Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. And this is Jack Nicholson. Saying, hey, Jack, how you doing? Why don't you come in? Eye of the mind makes the tiger. That little pup left his action figures. I put five of them in my pants. And I put, tried to eat the other one. It looked like a taco.